You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... We know that this COP comes at an inflection point of the world. That's the controversial Dr. Sultan al-Jaba, the president of COP28. We'll be in Dubai for the start of the UN annual climate conference. Taiwan and India increase their economic ties. We'll get the detail from Taipei. A Saudi Arabian company has bought a share of Heathrow Airport. We'll ask how this might change Europe's biggest air hub. We'll be in Vienna, where international law enforcement officers are meeting to celebrate the centenary of Interpol. We'll have a roundup of news from Australia and New Zealand. We'll wave the flag of Kazakhstan, which is undergoing a design change. And then... Robust investment in the cultural and creative sectors has paid dividends, and the country is leading by example in terms of the green transition, with the France 2030 investment plan underway. We'll hear why France is the creme de la creme of our soft power survey. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend the ceasefire in their war by at least one more day. Britain has announced it will send seven Royal Navy ships to patrol areas with vulnerable undersea infrastructure next month. And the diplomat, former US Secretary of State, National Security Advisor and Nobel Peace Prize winner Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the United Nations annual global climate talks, COP28, begins today in Dubai. This year, likely to be the hottest on record, more than 70,000 delegates are expected and ministers and high-ranking officials from 198 countries will try and forge agreement on how to hold global temperatures to 1.5 degrees. Many world leaders will be there, including King Charles III and Pope Francis. But there will be some notable absences and probably a great deal of controversy over some leaked documents that have come to light, showing that the UAE intends to use the summit to strike oil and gas deals. Well, I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch, who's author of Politico's Global Playbook, and she's at the summit in Dubai. Good morning to you, Suzanne. Good morning. Let's start with the host, the, the president of, of COP28, Dr. Sultan al-Jaba. Why is his appointment problematic? Yes, so Sultan al-Jabbar is also uh, the head of one of the world's biggest oil companies, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, known as ADNOC. So his appointment to lead these uh, negotiations immediately has raised questions, has been the source of criticism. Um, Now, the UAE would say that um, oil-producing countries uh, like the UAE, and indeed like a lot of countries around the world, for example, the US, Canada, etc., should be at the at the heart of discussions about climate change mitigation. Um, and they're highlighting what they're doing to invest in renewables, etc. Uh, but undoubtedly, this is seen as a real irony stroke hypocrisy by a lot of people that they have chosen to have 
COP28 here in the Gulf. What's the detail on these leaked documents and how involved is Al Jaba personally? Yes, so um, these leaked documents, the BBC reported earlier this week that it used its, the UAE effectively used its position as host of the talks to lobby for oil and gas deals with more than a dozen countries. And they uh, cited briefing notes, uh, documents published by the Centre for Climate Reporting. Now, yesterday at a press conference, which was pretty intense, I was there myself, um, Ali Abar, um re- uh, referred to these, he was asked about this, and he really hit back. Uh, saying uh, that the, the allegations were false, incorrect, and an attempt to undermine the work of the COP28 presidency. Uh, so they've come out fighting on that, but it's definitely uh, put a dampener, shall we say, on proceedings here. Another dampener, of course, is the fact that Joe Biden, the US president, won't be there. Why is that? Yes, so uh, Joe Biden has decided not to go, uh, but overnight we've just heard that he is sending Kamala Harris so I think that is an example of, of why he felt under pressure to send somebody that he got pressure, particularly within the left on his own in his own party, the Democratic side, who see Joe Biden as a, as a climate uh, president and, and, wa- and were annoyed that he wasn't going. Now, one of the reasons, and I think this applies to other re- leaders, he says he's a lot going on at the moment. There's obviously the conflict, the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict. And, and one issue, I think, is that if so- certain leaders came here to Dubai they may have felt the need to visit the wider region. Uh, so that may be one reason why he did not go. But uh, Harris, in a very last minute uh, announcement, uh, the White House has now confirmed that Kamala Harris is going to attend uh, the summit. Now, Chinese leader Xi Jinping is also staying away. And I just wonder if anything meaningful can be accomplished without the highest level representation from the country, which is the largest current emitter of greenhouse gases. Yes, I mean, the position of China is, is crucial here when it comes to climate change and the global approach to climate change. Um, now, it's not a huge surprise in one sense that Xi Jinping decided not to come. He doesn't, he wasn't at the G20 in India, for example, back in September, has not been travelling that much. Um, also, you know, officials point to the fact that he did meet uh, Joe Biden uh, in recent weeks on the west coast of the United States, and they did make some climate agreements between themselves. Um, but in saying that now, they've sent their top negotiator here, uh, if you like, a kind of counterpart to John Kerry, the UN uh, climate envoy. So he's a, he's a bit of a heavy hitter. But yes, I mean, look, the, the, the role of China, the fact he's not there, I think, is, you know, a gap here. Uh, uh, but what chi- China will have, the, have a say in everything that goes through here and no doubt will make its feelings clear on certain uh, issues that are being discussed. Now, as you say, you went to the, to the press conference yesterday. Did they outline what we can expect for the next few days? What's on the agenda? Well, I think there's a few things to watch. Um, the, For example, one of the, the, the buzzwords here is, is loss and damage. That's a phrase. Um, and it was emerged from last year's COP in Sharm el-Sheikh when um, the, uh, the COP, they decided to create a fund to help vulnerable countries who had been most impacted by climate change. So that was a big moment. But now it's all about implementation and how to finance that. So that's going to be a big topic. The other uh, issue will be the issue of fossil fuels, of course. And you've kind of got a gap between some countries who want to phase out fossil fuels completely and others who just want to phase down, as the phrase goes. So there's going to be a kind of a a row, I'm sure, about that. And then I suppose the other aspect is that... um, it's eight years on from the Paris Agreement back in 2015, and there's going to be an official stock take. It's called the global stock take. The, the results of that um, we're going to hear about here in Dubai. So that's also going to be a big focus to see, you know, how far countries have come and then 
what they're thinking about for the next kind of global targets also. And I mean, one of the targets all along has been keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Do you think that that can be achieved? Are participants hopeful about that? Well, Algebraan and others have said maybe that there might be some, they've sounded an optimistic note. But I mean, the, the, the literature on this is, is, is pretty damning. Um, you know, just last week, a UN report warned that the Earth is on track to heat up by three degrees Celsius if aggressive action isn't take, taken. So that effectively rips up that, that Paris, Paris uh, pledge. Um, so look, we, as you mentioned there, we've seen all these weather events across all parts of the world, you know, from Brazil a few weeks ago to Spain and Europe to the United States. Um, so it's very much a political issue for governments. It's very much a tangible change that ordinary people can feel. So I think one of the tasks here would be trying to communicate to ordinary citizens that the global community is trying to step up and combat the effects of climate change. Mm. Now, these events always attract protesters. Is there any sign of this? Yeah, so today we're going to have some press conferences by people like Friends of the Earth, for example. Um, There will be designated places where uh, people can protest here. Now, things are just beginning here as I speak. I haven't seen too, too many signs yet of protesters. There's, of course, question mark over the whole issue of dissent in the UAE. And groups like Human Rights Watch have already highlighted uh, the UAE's uh, dubious records when it comes to activism and human rights. There are a number of um, political prisoners, essentially, they are still languishing in jail here. So I think that's going to be a big issue. They have said, though, that the organisers will allow, a bit like what happened in Egypt, uh, protests to happen. Of course, the big question will be somebody, would somebody like Greta Thunberg arrive here and most people are flying into Dubai so that's got of course climate change implications Mm. so as yet uh, no sign but uh, that may change. Yeah and Suzanne just before you go because of course we're going to be hearing from this conference over the next few days I'd like to be able to sort of picture where it is and and how it works. Yes well it's it's a pretty overwhelming experience it's on the fringes of Dubai I personally I hadn't visited Dubai before but it's a huge site on the edges of the city really going into the desert that was set up for Expo 2020. So it's a very established and very impressive in many ways structure, huge structure. And it's divided into two pavilions, the Blue Pavilion, where which is run by the UN and where most of the, the, the activity happens. And then the Green Zone um, in the pavilion, that's more open to the public. People can visit here every day. Um, so it's, it's quite well set up in that sense. It's pretty well air conditioned, the buildings. Uh, that kind of thing. But I mean, today they're trying to encourage delegates to take the metro, which I took here today. But no doubt we're hearing about roads closures, particularly tomorrow when a lot of the big leaders arrive, who will probably be whisked here from uh, the airport. So look, it does feel very incongruous that you're having something like a climate change conference in a a country, in the UAE, which is so dependent uh, on oil production. I mean, that is the reality here. Um, But look, it it, it was Egypt last year. We don't know where it's going to take place uh, next year. Uh, But the UAE are trying to put their best foot forward here. But obviously, the optics of this are a kind of PR difficulty for them. Suzanne, thank you very much indeed. That's Suzanne Lynch at COP28 in Dubai. And this is The Globalist.
It's just coming up to 15.12 in Taipei, 7.12 here in London. Taiwan, which will go to the polls in January, is forging closer economic ties with India. There's a proposal that Taiwan could hire as many as 100,000 Indian workers to relocate to the self-ruled island that Beijing claims as its own. Well, I'm joined now from Taipei by the journalist William Yang. William, welcome back to the programme. Why does Taiwan need to import workers? So, because Taiwan uh, continues to be a very important uh, manufacturing hub, uh, of course, I think semiconductor is one of the key areas, but also there are other uh, electronic manufacturing plants here in Taiwan that heavily rely on migrant workers. Traditionally, these migrant workers are from countries like the Philippines and Vietnam, but uh, with the large population that India possesses, uh, there has been negotiations and engagement between the Taiwanese and Indian government to explore the possibility of perhaps importing more Indian workers into Taiwan to help work at these plants. However, uh, the Government right now has come out to explain that the negotiation is still at a very very early stage. They did not reach a concrete number of how many Indian migrant workers would be uh, imported from India to Taiwan. And the so-called 100,000 Indian workers would come to Taiwan and work was, in fact, in their view, an attempt by China to launch a a cognitive cognitive warfare against the Taiwanese public because uh, the rumor immediately circulated online right after the news of the two governments negotiating uh, became public. And then uh, it immediately created this uh, online backlash again and pushback against the news and the decision of importing more Indian workers into Taiwan. There were a lot of talks about uh, it, Taiwan potentially become the island of rape and sexual harassment because of the stereotypes uh, that are associated with Indian uh, men in, in particular. And so uh, this issue has impact, in fact become an area where the Taiwanese government see China trying to influence Taiwan's domestic public opinion ahead of the election that's coming up in mm. January. And, and in terms of, of needing a bigger workforce, I mean, a lot of this is down to the fact that uh, Taiwan is quite an elderly population. Right. Uh, in fact, Taiwan has one of the lowest birth rates uh, in Asia, but also in the world. And this has been an area where the Taiwanese government has been struggling to come up with plans to uh, both try to support the Asian population. They are trying to put forward these uh, different policies that will be supporting the Asian population, but at the same time, focusing on the economic side of the uh, work because there is a rapidly shrinking workforce coming up. And so migrant workers from different countries will then play an even more important role in supporting the backbone of Taiwan's manufacturing industries. Does India subscribe to the One China policy? I mean, is this official recognition of Taiwan as an independent state? Right. So I think officially India is also very careful about uh, sticking to the one China policy, which is the the only China that they recognize is the People's Republic of China. But at the same time, they have uh, been showing a growing appetite to deepen exchanges, especially, I think, economic exchanges with Taiwan. We saw 
just a few days ago on November 27th, Foxconn, the biggest uh, iPhone manufacturer, announced that they're going to set up a new plant in India. So there are a lot more Taiwanese companies now exploring the possibility of setting up operation in India, especially as part of the wave of diversifying or even uh, exiting from China. Uh, as part of this diversification effort since the beginning of COVID-19 uh, pandemic three years ago. Now, China and India have also been having problems recently. What's the state of the relationship and how might this India-Taiwan deal exacerbate those geopolitical tensions? Yeah, I think uh, India and China are still locked in a very tense uh, tension, partly mainly due to the border uh, disputes that we saw it started in 2020. They've been engaged in multiple rounds of negotiation. There have been some improvements that both sides are pulling back their troops, but uh, the border areas continue to be a very tense uh, area of issue that uh, the tensions can flare up anytime. And I think the Taiwan-India engagement uh, will depend on how deep these engagement uh, becomes and also uh, how perhaps of the tone from the Indian government on issues related to Taiwan will then determine how Beijing views this uh, developing uh, I think uh, relationship. But I think India at the same time has always been this uh, m- up and coming great power that is very good at uh, ba- playing the balancing act. So uh, I would I would think that it remains to be seen whether India have a bigger appetite beyond trade and economic cooperation with Taiwan going forward. Mm. Uh, And if these Indian workers do come to Taiwan, are they going to get a good deal? uh, Are they paid market rates and so on? So we have actually, uh, in fact, seen some Indian uh, workers, especially very educated Indian workers, uh, staying in Taiwan, working mainly in the uh, semiconductor industry. But even for these very educated PhD holding Indian uh, nationals, their pays, in fact, are somewhat lower than the average market rate. And so I don't actually see that uh, it's optimistic to expect uh, the Indian migrant workers that will be mostly working as in these plants to help manufacture the uh, electronic devices or semiconductors to actually be paid on the uh, market average. Uh, but of course, I think the details will remain to be seen as the both governments continue to negotiate the details uh, of this potential collaboration and the deal. And you mentioned the, the sort of online scare stories uh, about Indian male stereotypes. Are, 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 the, are the workers likely to face racism? Yes, there's actually a deep, deeply entrenched, I think, racism towards people Uh, from the global south, especially from Southeast Asia. And there are a lot of stereotypes associated with Indians. They are often being considered as not very clean. And, you know, at the same time, they're considered as lower class. And also uh, the media coverage about India over the last few years about rapes and sexual harassment and women being sexually attacked have been dominating the uh, media's attention on India. And so I think that is actually uh, informing the public with a very negative stereotypes about people from India in general. Mm. And so that's what I think why we're seeing this surge of pushback and negative uh, comments about 
the potential news of more Indian workers coming into Taiwan. And it becomes a very obvious area that China could potentially exploit as they try to, I think, ratchet up this anti-government policy sentiment among Taiwanese public. And that, that is really because of the election that's coming up. How, how might it influence it? This could potentially, you know, I think, uh, influence the support uh, for the ruling party, which is looking like the front runner right now in a three-way presidential race. Uh, They're leading by about 5%, and China has been uh, using different ways to try to send out signals and propaganda that are working against or trying to undermine the ruling party's policy proposals, including their proposal of strengthening Taiwan's national defense, China has been trying to say that that is exactly how that will turn Taiwan into a war zone if Taiwan continues to pursue and go down that path. And regard in regard with this potential deal with India, I think it's to try to undermine the Taiwanese government's flagship economic policy called Southbound policy, which is to deepen ties with global South countries like India and Southeast Asian countries and trying to, uh, you know, China is trying to prove that this is a failed effort and that's only going to make Taiwan become less safe than before if more migrant workers from these global South countries are coming to Taiwan. William, thank you very much indeed. That's William Yang there in Taipei. Now, still to come on the programme the country changing its national flag due to fears it resembles a sunflower. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin. It's 22 minutes past seven here in London and we'll continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Nina Dos Santos, who's an international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor. Good morning to you, Nina. Good morning, Georgina. Now, hero or villain? Either way, a lot to say about Henry Kissinger, who's died at 100 years old. Yes, almost fitting that he made it to a full century, a century that he had such a huge impact on. Um, You know, his life... uh, goes from having been born in Germany. He suffered the waves of anti-Semitism that led up to the Second World War. Um, His parents fled to the United States and then he embraced European-style realpolitik but goodness me, uh, with a focus on making sure the United States came out on top on all of these kind of transactional uh, types of diplomacy that he was famous for. Um, If you look at the coverage in the newspapers, some of it's a bit more nuanced and complimentary, as you'd imagine. Um, And then, of course, there is Rolling Stone magazine, which your producer, Vincent McAvinney, pointed my attention towards earlier today, which outright calls him a war criminal. They say... The war criminal, Henry Kissinger, has finally died. Um, And they 
claimed that his actions in parts of the world may have cost about three to four million lives, largely of non-US citizens, um, because he was relentless in pursuing allies of the United States, even if potentially they weren't uh, democratically elected. So we're talking about sanctioning uh, the bombing campaign of Cambodia, even though that country was neutral, um, which cost tens of thousands of lives there and ushered in a murderous regime by Pol Pot. Also supporting Augusto Pinochet in Chile, even though Salvador Allende, the Marxist leader, was democratically elected there. He also got involved in the struggle for freedom um, in East Timor, Timor-Leste, um, on the side of the Indonesian government as well, didn't he? But there are some big um, wins for him, reputationally, most notably uh, helping to create a detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, also, you know, famously went to go and meet Mao Zedong even just this summer. He was meeting Xi Jinping in China at the age of 100. Um, and he's very much revered in China for having created this rapprochement between China and the United States and a rapprochement between Israel and Egypt as well in the aftermath of the 1973 war there that's in the forefront of people's minds mm. now, given what's happening in the Middle East. I would urge people to have a look at that Rolling Stone article. Fascinating piece. Uh, Let's go on now to uh, the FT, which is reporting that the US is accusing an Indian official in a foiled plot to kill a Sikh separatist in New York City. Now, this comes after there's already been an accusation by Canada of exactly the same thing. That's right. And in fact, just earlier this week, the Financial Times did a big deep dive into Canada's foreign policy, um, essentially saying, well, look, Canada can't, you know, ball and chain itself to the United States foreign policy on these types of issues. And as a result, You're seeing uh, Justin Trudeau's government, which has been in power for quite some time now, getting quite punchy when it comes to defending Canadian uh, interests, not just with China, but also, uh, sorry, not just with China, which has been in the past, obviously, uh, Canada's had big spats with, also Saudi Arabia, but now, obviously, India, because Justin Trudeau accused... um, the Indian government of assassinating a Sikh separatist in Canada, it seems as though that may well have been based on far more credible intelligence than Justin Trudeau was given credit for initially because now the United States appears to be backing him up saying, yes, there is, uh, at least according to this indictment that's been issued by the DOJ here. So this is an, an independent-ish, um, uh, you know, indictment here. Um not coming from the state, not a warning coming from the State Department. It is actually an indictment claiming that uh, an Indian official and other um, others allied to diplomatic missions of India and the United States have been interacting with covert agents uh, posing as potential assassins to assassinate other uh, Sikh separatist targets based in the United States. It's it's a really big deal here because obviously India is trying to burnish its credentials with the United States again, is a pushback against China. And we know that the China hawks are quite vocal in the United States, also here in the UK. Mm. And India was supposed to be a counterweight to that. But as we know, Narendra Modi's government has pursued journalists, not just Sikh separatists. Um, and obviously, the, the tolerance of dissent, even outside of India's borders, ex- might extend to the United States, which is very worrying. Yeah. Now, I don't want to give a lot of time to Brexit. <laughs> But let's quickly. We've wasted a lot of our lives talking <laughs> exactly. about this, haven't we? Uh, Ursula von der Leyen says that the e- that the UK should rejoin the EU. Really? 
<laughs> oh, she's still bleating on about this. It's unbelievable. My toes curled when I saw this. And then I thought, take a deep breath. This isn't addressed to us at all. This is addressed again, yet again, to her own constituency, which is the European Union. And we've got to remember that people like Geert Wilders of the far right in the Netherlands tri- uh, triumphed at the election in the Netherlands just the other day. And as a result, people like him want to see the Netherlands exiting the EU. They might be allied with people like Marine Le Pen, who will push for something like France exiting the EU, or at least, you know, grabbing more powers back from Brussels. Uh, Ditto potentially in places like Italy and other countries. So really, I think what she's doing here is, yet again, they can't let the sleeping dogs lie. Um, They have to say, well, look, the UK will regret it. Make sure you other Northern European countries, if you, you head out the exit door or try and renegotiate your status in any way, it's not worth it. You'll regret it as well. And the headline from the from the Telegraph, Ursula von der Leyen says, "We goofed it up." Which I know is the just choice lovely. of language is just <laughs> bizarre. Um, now, COP twenty eight launches today in Dubai. Our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is going there, uh, and uh, there are various other people going from Britain at the same time. And guess what? They're all going in their own planes separately, aren't they? Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite of the carpool system, isn't it? It's the opposite of uh, the political carpool, because remember that they're going to have all sorts of Sherpas and, and ministers who are going as well. So this is just the big three. David Cameron, Lord David Cameron, unelected, by the way, we've got to point out, um, taking his own plane. Rishi Sunak, the prime minister. taking Also him. unelected. Well, that's a good, very good point. Thank you. At least he was elected to office yeah. <laughs> as opposed to the current office that he uh, serves. Um, and then, obviously, uh, King Charles... Who also unelected. Is unelected. <laughs> um, we won't even start there. We'll, we'll be here all day if we, if we go down that route as to why he isn't elected. Um, but out of all three of them, he's actually the one who's burnished his green credentials over his long three quarters of a century. And he's also taking a plane to this far uh, part of the world separately as well. I suppose you could argue that the head of state and government should be on separate planes for constitutional reasons. Heaven forbid if there were to be an accident and so on and so forth, that's fine. But why David Cameron gets his own plane, I'm not entirely sure. And it sort of just, it starts COP28 off on the wrong foot. And remember that this is taking place in a oil-rich part of the world where there's been a lot of controversy and allegations that oil deals might be negotiated on the sidelines. So it just completely defeats the purpose. And of course, as we know, the UK under Rishi Sunak's recent government's had quite a checkered history so far of its climate change commitments. So it does speak volumes, really, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Nina, thank you very much indeed. I certainly hope that you're going to be running home as you normally do to save the planet. <laughs> now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend the ceasefire in their war by at least one more day, minutes before the six-day truce was due to expire. Israel's military said in a statement today that the truce will continue as mediators sought to release more hostages held in Gaza in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Britain has announced it will send seven Royal Navy ships and a maritime patrol aircraft to take part in joint expeditionary force patrols of areas with vulnerable undersea infrastructure next month. Europe and NATO have become increasingly concerned about the vulnerability of critical infrastructure around and under the Baltic Sea. And Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. The diplomatic powerhouse, whose roles as a national security advisor and secretary of state under two presidents, left an indelible mark on US foreign policy and earned him a controversial Nobel Peace Prize, died at his home in Connecticut yesterday. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. 
Heathrow in the United Kingdom is one of the world's busiest airports and Europe's largest. A change in the structure of ownership of the hub has now been announced, subject to regulatory approval. Uh, Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund has taken a 10% stake for £1 billion from the Spanish infrastructure company Ferrovial, which is selling off its holding after 17 years. I'm joined now by Paul Charles, the CEO of Luxury Travel and Trade Consultancy, the PC agency. Paul, welcome back to the show. What is this deal worth? Thank you. Good morning. It values Heathrow at around £10 billion. That's before you consider any debt. So in terms of size, it's a similar size to intercontinental hotels as valuation on the stock market. And you have to remember that Heathrow is one of the most attractive airports in the world. I think this is why the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund are buying into it. This is an airport that handles pretty well 1,300 flights a day in and out of Heathrow, 230,000 passengers a day going through it. And there's an opportunity to make a lot of money by making Heathrow much more resilient than it has been in the past. How significant would you say this change in the ownership structure is? I think it's hugely significant because we're seeing another vote of confidence by another Middle Eastern investment fund. Uh, You already have Qatar, which owns 20% of Heathrow. So now you have Saudi Arabia also joining that group. And it comes at a time when a new CEO has just started. And this is a CEO who used to run Copenhagen Airport. He's used to making an airport operationally very resilient. And I think this will be the focus now. If the new CEO can make Heathrow something that we can be proud of, and we haven't been proud of it in recent years due to the fact that it hasn't been resilient, then I think the Saudis see an opportunity here to make Heathrow more resilient, hence more profitable, and get the landing fees up. Don't forget, there's always been a huge row between the airlines and the airport about how much can be charged in our fee, in our flight fares, uh, so the passenger fees. And um, that's, uh, although it's been set recently at a level which the airport is not happy about, a lower level, then I think Saudi sees this as an opportunity to get those fees up in due course. Mm. Let's just unpick what you said a little bit about not being proud of the airport. I know you're someone who travels extensively. Where does Mm. Heathrow sit compared to other hubs? Well, it used to be the flag bearer. I mean, it really was uh, globally as an airport which could be proud of its operation, but it has grown so much, especially since Heathrow Terminal 5 opened um, in, during the 2000s. And it, it's, le- it's got left behind. When you travel through Istanbul or Abu Dhabi or Helsinki or Singapore, you do get as a passenger a much cleaner, a much nicer experience. The escalators work. The technology is better. There's iris technology from our eyes uh, checking where we are in the airport. Heathrow is introducing these sorts of things, but it's way behind where others are. And I think the new CEO is going to be focusing on this rather than focusing on growing Heathrow through a third runway. I think that argument is dead now. This is about Heathrow becoming operationally strong, very customer focused. And if he can achieve that with this new shareholder backing, then we're going to have Heathrow back in one of the top three airports in the world. And I wonder why uh, the Spanish company Ferrovial sold after 17 years. Yes, I mean, they do still have interests in the UK with other airports and all over the world, in fact, especially in the USA. Uh, They see airports as being highly profitable. But this is an opportunity now for them to get out of Heathrow 
because they know that those passenger fees, which I was talking about, are set for the next few years. They believe they've done what they can. They've made the money based on their initial uh, injection many years ago. They now feel they've made enough from it. They need to focus on other things. But Saudi Arabia sees this as very attractive because it is a key piece of British infrastructure. And as the Saudis try to move themselves away from relying on oil for their revenues, they're able to invest in key infrastructure assets around the world. And they see Heathrow as very attractive. And like, just before you go, I wonder how, how politically sensitive this is. I mean, you, you mentioned that Qatar owns a 20% uh, interest. We've got a company from Quebec, uh, Singapore, Australia. Uh, mm. I mean, it's a, it's a very international group of, of shareholders here. Does that mm. represent some kind of political risk? Well, I think it's helpful to have international investors because they're able to put pressure on Heathrow's management to improve and get better and showcase the best of other airports, especially Singapore. We know Changi often wins best airport in the world. They win it for a reason, because they're operationally resilient and the passenger experience is strong. So if those shareholders can put pressure on Heathrow's new management, then it will make Heathrow more attractive. And for the UK government, of course, they will be making sure that the ownership structure doesn't become too uh, uh, focused on one individual shareholder. So you won't see a majority shareholder emerging from the Middle East, for example. You will see this sort of mix, this bag of investors sharing the ownership of infrastructure of Heathrow. And for passengers, that's important. You need a mix so that you get... Uh, fresh views coming in from shareholders, but also a change in the way Heathrow is run. And that's what we're going to see very soon. Airlines moving between terminals, moving out of Terminal 4 into Terminal 2. There's talk Virgin might move out of Terminal 3 into Terminal 2. We're going to see a lot of change. But as far as I'm concerned for passengers, that's a good thing. Paul Charles, thank you very much indeed. This is Monocle Radio. It's 8.37 in Lyon, 7.37 here in London. Interpol, the global policing agency, started in 1923. From an initial 20 members, the organisation now has 196 and representatives from many of those countries will be gathering to celebrate the centenary in the founding city, Vienna, this week. Well, Alexei Koryolov is Monocle's correspondent in Vienna and he joins me now. Alexei, what exactly does Interpol do? Uh, Well, first of all, morning, Georgina. Um, Yeah, well, Interpol, uh, it's sort of uh, the idea of of behind Interpol when it was first floated uh, in 1914 and then indeed uh, during its founding in, in 1923 in Vienna was that it would sort of, it had no legal authority over its member states and it existed merely to sort of collect and catalog intelligence and then share this intelligence with its um, its 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 members um, between different police forces, and then it would be them um, who would make arrests uh, and prosecutions and so on and so on. So in that sense, it sort of it has no real power. It's 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 only sort of function and meaning is to share intelligence. So it's had quite a checkered history. Can you tell us something about its controversial past? Well, yes, of course. Uh, so as we said, um, Interpol was founded in, in, in Vienna as, as the International Criminal Police Commission, I, I, ICBC, that was its first name. And then, of course, when um, Austria was um, invaded by, by, um, by the Nazis in 1938, 
Hitler took over control of Interpol and he, he moved the HQ of Interpol to Berlin, where it shared office space with the Gestapo. <laughs> um, and um, during that time, of course, Interpol was led by Nazis. Uh, and in fact, it was being led by Nazis well into the late 60s, or former Nazis rather, former SS officers. So it had that stain on its reputation. Um, but then it, slowly things started to change. It was renamed Interpol in the 50s. Um, it then moved to, to a suburb of Paris, and of course today it's based in Lyon. Um, and uh, so now it's sort of, it's, it's shaken off this, this um, uh, dark history, this dark Nazi history, um, and it's doing its best, um, obviously, in, in this um, uneasy uh, international climate to um, capture cr criminals. But of course, there has also been controversy around the president elected in 2021. That's Ahmed Nasser al-Raisi. Why have some people queried his appointment? Uh, well, yeah, he's he's being investigated in France for complicity in torture, um, and so of course, you know, that 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 sort of thing is um, again, as 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 I've been mentioning, you know, with Interpol's Nazi past, um, you know, that sort of this is the sort of criticism that Interpol um, has faced um, uh, consistently over the years, mm. um, and you know, it's something obviously, you know. It has 196 member states, as you said, you know, and obviously not all of them are like-minded. You know, not, not all of them um, see eye to eye and, you know, member states uh, will will raise concerns about appointments. And, uh, of course, you know, another problem that Interpol um, has faced um, over the decades is is controversy over its, its red notice system. So Interpol, what it does, it, it issues um, sort of um, uh, what, what it calls red notices for wanted persons. So that then it shares this information with its member states and then they act upon this information. But of course, um, one of the criticism it has faced is that um, its member states, its authoritarian member states have, have used and abused the system to hunt down political, um, political dissidents. Uh, and Interpol was all too willing to, to help this, um, to, to help them in, in, in this. Uh, so, you know, Interpol, obviously, as, as a big international organization, will have problems like this and it, it will need to find ways to, to deal with them. Mm. Of course, there have been some fantastic successes over the years, though. Well, exactly, yes. Um, so, obviously, one of the most spectacular arrests, uh, coups by, by Interpol, was, was the capture of Bosnian Serb wartime leader, uh, Radovan Karadzic who was captured uh, in 2008 after almost 13 years on the run. And another one is, of course, the French serial killer, Charles, Charles Sobrage. So obviously, yeah, um, you know, Interpol um, has this history of success as well as that hi dark history uh, and that controversial history. And what do you think the challenges it will face in the next hundred years will be? I mean, it, crime is changing so quickly. Well, it's true. And of course, you know, these days, um, and this is what police leaders here at the, at the Congress in Vienna are saying that, um, you know, crime is changing. Obviously, you know, the, the, to go back to, 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 to that first idea behind Interpol, um, to, to, to those founding years. So the idea was that, or rather the concern of criminologists and, and, and police leaders at the time, beginning of the 20th century, was that, you know, because um, criminals could evade capture so easily, uh, thanks to new modes of transport like uh, railways and steamships and, 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 and aircraft and so on. And the nature of crime had changed and that's why they needed an organization like Interpol. So that was sort of the idea behind that then. 
And of course, um, this is what is driving Interpol these days as well, is that, you know, the nature of crime is changing, cybercrime, it's environmental crime. Um, and th these are the kinds of challenges that, that, that it faces mm. today and, and needs to address. Uh, Alexei, the, the gathering's taking place in Vienna. Why is that location a little ironic? Well, it is ironic indeed, yes. Um, uh, so I was hoping you would come to that because, <laughs> I mean, obviously Vienna is full of spies. You know, everybody knows that. Vienna is a hub, is a hub for international espionage. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been estimated um, that there are up to 7,000 foreign spies in Vienna at this moment as we speak. Uh, and there's about um, a thousand of these uh, police chiefs now gathered in Vienna. So it, it's really funny to think that, you know, they you know, during their time off or, or in between sessions, you know, they may be sharing a street or, or a cafe with, with a spy, you know, and, and they wouldn't know it. And of course, you know, Vienna is has a history of that as well, you know, because, again, actually around the same time as Interpol was being formed, uh, there were, you know, Joseph Stalin was in Vienna as well as Adolf Hitler. And they didn't know about each other. You know, mm. they never met, apparently. So, you know, that's, that's <laughs> in, in that way, that's, that, that's very funny um, that yeah, this Congress is taking place here in Vienna. Absolutely. Koryalov, Alexei Koryalov, our man in Vienna. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture, and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. And now it's time for some Antipodean news. Natalia Sutherland is a reporter based in New Zealand and she joins us now from Auckland. Hello to you, Natalia. Hi, how are you? So your new government has confirmed its plan for its first 100 days. Now, your Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, says they are ambitious for New Zealand. Could you break that down for us? Well, ambitious and a little bit shocking. So the New Zealand public had to wait 41 days while uh, the ACT Party, New Zealand First and National, three of uh, parties that have formed a coalition, uh, worked out a negotiation deal together that happened late last week. And this week, the public really got to dive into those policies that were agreed upon in the coalition deal. Uh, and one of those uh, policies that were released was this uh, smoking policy or repealing of New Zealand's ban on smoking. Now, this was brought in by the last government in an attempt to make New Zealand smoke-free in the next couple of years. It was acclaimed internationally and inspired even the UK government to take up a similar smoking ban. So this news has been quite shocking for the New Zealand public, not only because smoking is one of the leading causes of death in New Zealand or preventable death, but the finance minister coming out on live TV this, uh, this week, in fact, saying... So the reason that they're scrapping the legislation was to help fund their tax relief plan through ta taxing 
tobacco. Now, the PM has also backed her saying that smoking has reduced and effectively is not as bad or as big a deal as it once was, and that if they banned it, it would only fuel the black market. Obviously, this has outraged health experts in New Zealand who say, for the obvious reasons, that it would affect the health of New Zealanders, but it would also cost the health sector hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 20 years. Mm. Uh, There was also an Arms Act amendment. Yes, so we're not quite sure about what the details of this will be. It is in the government's plan in the next 100 uh, days. Um, This is brought in by the ACT Party, one of the coalition partners. They want to see the gun registry changed. They've had beef with this ever since the Labour government under Jacinda Ardern had brought this in in response to the Christchurch terror attacks in 2019. So as it stands, the registry has gun owners registered their details, how many guns they own with police. So police can track the number of guns in New Zealand and who owns them and where they're located. The Act Party argues that this puts too much burden on gun owners and gun club members and that it doesn't stop illegal guns getting into the hands of, say, gang members. Mm. However, Mm. police say that the registry does in fact help them track where the guns are and track guns that gang members have. Let's move to Australia. Now, I'm surprised this hasn't already been outlawed, but uh, they are considering a law that uh, is going to ban the Nazi salute. This, of course, comes off the back of a rise of anti-Semitism directly related to the Israel-Hamas war. Yes, well, in fact, the federal government, as of late yesterday, actually passed the law banning this in the House of Representatives. So not only will it uh, ban public display of Nazi symbols, such as the swastika, it goes one step further, as you mentioned, and bans the Nazi gestures or salute. Now, this comes after the Labour government over there came under pressure because uh, of the dramatic rise in not only anti-Semitic, but Islamophobia uh, uh, since the outbreak of violence between Hamas and Israel. Now, initially, uh, the government said that by banning the salute would just be too difficult, and that was advice from police. But they bowed to that public pressure that they've been coming under, not only from the opposition, but also from the public who have sent them an open letter. Now, this bipartisan law that got passed last night still has to go to the Senate to be debated. But once it's through, Australia will join Victoria, who has already banned Nazi symbols and the salute. They've also convicted one person already who used the Nazi salute in a white supremacy march earlier this year in central Melbourne. And with that um, conviction, either comes a $23,000 fine or 12 months in prison, so it's quite a serious conviction mm. to get. Mm. One thing to note as well, this new federal law also includes terrorist groups, so it's not just aimed at anti-Semitic behaviour and Nazi symbols and salutes. It also includes any memorabilia symbols that are attributed to Hezbollah, Hamas and the Islamic State. So it's quite a broad uh, law that they're passing through. Mm. Natalia, finally, I want to look at climate because, of course, COP28 launches today in Dubai and there's a big story that's getting a lot of traction in New Zealand about the ozone layer uh, and how big the hole is and where it is. Yes, yeah, so this is really interesting research that has been 
uh, conducted in New Zealand over the last 18 years that was released over the last week, done by researchers in the University of Otago. So they've been tracking the ozone hole or thinning of the ozone layer since 2004 and believe that it is uh, growing in size and that the hole is uh, remaining open for longer. Now, uh, just to recap what the ozone layer is, it's the region of the Earth's stratosphere that absorbs most of the sun's ultraviolet. And that was discovered back in, the hole itself was discovered back in the 1980s. And that brought through a ban in CFDs that some of us may remember, that's such as aerosols. And it was believed that this helped close the ozone hole and reduced its size. However, this research is showing the opposite. And it also reveals that the ozone thinning or the ozone hole could be contributing to the Australian bushfires, the number of cyclones that we've been seeing over the last couple of years in the Southern Hemisphere. It's also um, interesting that the research is trying to debunk some myths that we've had about the ozone layer. One of that being that the ozone hole uh, has been reducing in size or that it's nearly closed, but also the fact that it is over New Zealand and Australia, which is a myth that's over Antarctica and has always been. Natalia, thank you very much indeed. That's Natalia Sutherland joining us from Auckland. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Kazakhstan's parliament voted on Wednesday to tweak the design of the national flag. Author David Badanis is with me now in the studio to tell us why. David, what does the flag look like, firstly? It looks a little bit like looking up from the top of a yurt, which uh, is a a mobile large tent, which they're very proud of. It's central to the history. And it's surrounded by beautiful rays of sun, which until when the new flag was set up at the end of the Soviet Union, those rays of sun were beautifully curved. Now people have thought it looks a little bit like a curving sunflower, which in the local language means someone who's fickle. So they're thinking of straightening the sunbeams. So basically, the, the sunflower in, in Kazakhstan is offensive. Uh, mildly offensive. It's one of those ambiguous terms, which uh, you can shift one way or another. What's key behind it is that in a new nation, flags mean a lot. Think of the early Union Jack. There was terrific hostility between England and Scotland. The Union Jack is a compromise. It's the two different things pushed together. Uh, Central Asia republics often came from um, tribal uh, areas, and it was a big thing to create a unified nation. The symbols are really important. Tell us more about that cultural significance to do with our national emblems. Uh, Yes, so um, they encode a real lot of knowledge. Flags are often a compromise. So the Union Jack famously is Scotland and England a compromise. The King James uh, translation of the Bible came around at the same time and has the same thing. There's uh, I I, I, uh, have studied all the languages there, or most of the languages. And in the King James translation, there's a little bit of Scottish Presbyterian attitudes uh, from the bottom up and a little bit of Anglican English attitudes from the top down, sometimes in the same paragraph. Uh, the U.S. flag, for example, has 13 horizontal lines from the original 13 colonies who did not want to be united. A lot of people said that flag desecrates my beliefs. 
Also, flags hold history. The U.S. flag has 50 stars, and they are equal size. Think what that means if the next presidential election goes into the House of Representatives and each state, which is the law if it's a tie, gets the exact same vote. Montana, the exact same amount of voting as California. Which would be extraordinary. But we see it locked into the flag that people look at every day. Some of the deepest assumptions we hold are, we hold are the ones we never examine. So uh, do you think flags have the power to impact a, a national psyche? Terrifically. Um, uh, the French Revolution uh, certainly wasn't French. Most people didn't speak French then. It's unclear if it was a revolution. Napoleon, uh, um, uh, kings, blah, blah, blah. But the flag made you feel, wow, it's a new thing. It actually is new, the, uh, the three-color French flag versus the previous royalist symbols. It sort of locks in what's happening and shifts you in a certain direction. And it's odd, isn't it? The, the extreme reaction to people burning flags. I mean, it's hugely offensive. It's sort of like taking a photograph of your mother and asking somebody, are you going to treat this nicely or are you going to treat it badly? Yeah, it's extraordinary. I wonder how the design of flags is arrived upon. You've talked about compromise, but I wonder then if there is a sort of central flag registry, an international body that controls or approves them. Ah, this is, uh, this is really a big issue. So in the International Red Cross, in some countries, you can't have a cross. So there will be the, the Red Crescent in, in many Muslim countries. So that's a little bit centralized. A lot of the centralization of our standards of, of electricity and of, uh, of Greenwich Mean Time and things like that came from the late 1800s or early 1900s. Uh, Greenwich Mean Time came around because France wanted Paris Mean Time. London wanted Greenwich Mean Time. And London had a much bigger navy than France did. So London won. Arguments about international standardization are often won by the largest force. Where is the IMF and the World Bank? Where are they headquartered? in the country which had the large, has the largest navy, at least for a while. Mm. So in, in terms of, of, of flags themselves, there's nobody saying you can't have that. Uh, correct. So there's nobody on top because it's, the, nation, it's the, the essence of nationalism, which, as we know, is, is fairly recent. Uh, during the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the areas which are now uh, Hungary and uh, Romania and stuff could not choose their own flags because there's a higher entity above them. We do not at the moment have a higher entity. It's every <laughs> nation for itself. Yeah. And finally, David, your worst and favorite flag. Uh, my favorite flag has to be the French flag because I was a, a young man in Paris uh, visiting on a one-week holiday, and I stayed for a decade in France. <laughs> and I love the ideology of it being open. Uh, the worst flags I shall not specify. David Badana's wiggling out of the question. Thank you very much indeed. And finally, today is launch day for the brand new December-January issue of Monocle magazine. And within it, you'll find our annual soft power survey, featuring the countries that have mastered the subtler arts of global influence and diplomacy. All this week on The Globalist, we've been counting down our ranking. And today, we reveal which nation took the prized number one spot. France. To tell us why, Monocle's Isabella Jewell reads the piece written by our correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald. Let's have a listen. France hasn't had it easy in recent years. It has had to contend with the rise of the far right and waves of social unrest, from the Gilets Jaunes protests to riots sparked by police violence. Nonetheless, it remains a soft power titan. The enduring appeal of the French way of life has made it to the world's most visited destination. 
Robust investment in the cultural and creative sectors has paid dividends, and the country is leading by example in terms of the green transition, with the France 2030 investment plan underway. Paris's decision to ban rental e-scooters in September is inspiring other cities to follow suit too. That said, Emmanuel Macron, now in his second presidential term, knows that France can't be complacent in a multipolar world where it often finds itself in the thick of fierce ideological battles. We must rearm our diplomacy, he told a gathering of French ambassadors in August, stressing the importance of the image that the country projects to the world. Macron is particularly concerned about anti-French sentiment in Africa, which Paris accuses Moscow of stoking. Against such a background, the increasing role of France's African and Arab diaspora in soft power efforts makes sense. Franco-Senegalese creatives have been crucial in bringing Chanel runway shows to Dakar. France's culture minister Rima Abdel-Malak draws on her Lebanese roots. Footballer Kylian Mbappé, the captain of France's national team, grew up in the Paris suburbs with a Cameroonian father and Algerian mother. Much-hyped French NBA star Victor Wembanyama has Congolese heritage. Macron has said that he wants the country's inclusivity to be showcased at the 2024 Summer Olympics, following its successful hosting of the Rugby World Cup in the autumn. That's not just a repose to the far right, it's also good for French soft power. Monocle comment. Good. Prominent French citizens of African and Arab heritage are now playing a larger role in the country's soft power efforts while showcasing its diversity. Bad. France too often makes the international headlines as a result of societal unrest at home, polarisation and the rise of the far right. That was Monocle's Isabella Jewell reading France's profile in our soft power survey, which was written by our correspondent Mary Fitzgerald. By the December-January issue of Monocle magazine now, which is available in all good newsstands, or order your copy at monocle.com. That's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Vincent McAvinney, Laura Kramer and Cece Armstrong, our researcher Harrison Warlock and our studio manager Callum McLean. And I just want to throw ahead to the weekend a little bit. Our uh, Zurich Christmas Market will be on at Dufestrasse 90 in Zurich. If you're there, please do come along. I'll be there alongside Tyler Brule. We'll be uh, hosting radio all weekend, so you can always tune in if you can't be there personally. And I wanted to flag up Sunday's edition of Meet the Writers, which... Uh, has the winner of the Booker Prize, Paul Lynch, as the featured guest. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday in London. Uh, uh, The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>